In our Advent season sermon series, we turn again to the prophet Isaiah this morning to chapter 7 for the reading of verses 10 through 16. Now, in reading this passage, we're, we're dropping in into the middle of a conversation that's ongoing between the prophet Isaiah and the king of Judah, King Ahaz. And Isaiah is giving King Ahaz a word of assurance about God's delivering Judah from their enemies. Ahaz is not believing it. Ahaz is resisting a word from the Lord, a word of assurance, and then Isaiah, to make his point, says, well, even though you don't want a word from the Lord, the Lord is gonna speak this word to you. So we're, we're in the middle of a larger conversation, and I'll say more about that historic uh, context uh, in the midst of the sermon, but I do that by way of introduction because it's obvious at verse 10 that we're already in the middle of a conversation, so don't be confused by that. And let us ask the Lord to send forth his spirit upon our minds to give us spiritual understanding, spiritual illumination, and to open our hearts so that we may hear the good news of Jesus Christ and place our faith completely in him. Let us pray. Most gracious and everlasting God, we thank you for the wonders of your grace and love poured forth to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God in human flesh and blood. In his name, we ask for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit anew in us, upon us, among us, so that you might grant us true understanding of your word, not only with our minds, but with our hearts so that we might be renewed in faith and further transformed into the image of Jesus, to whom with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 10, this is the word of the living God. Again, the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Thus far in the reading of God's holy and errant infallible word and to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Almost every Sunday when we affirm the historic worldwide faith of the true Christian church, we say in the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe... In Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. We also sing that affirmation throughout the seasons of Advent and Christmas. For example, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child. Or, Christ by highest Heaven adored Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. We say it in the creed, we sing it in the hymns because we read it in the Holy Scripture. And we just read from the book of the prophet Isaiah this prophecy given more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we read, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Likewise, from the Gospel of Matthew, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And in that passage from Matthew chapter 1, we are further told that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we say it, we sing it, and we believe it because we read it in the Holy Scriptures. And therefore, the one true church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world has always affirmed and continues to affirm the virgin birth of Jesus as an essential and non-negotiable doctrine of true Christian faith. Never mind the wobbly need denials of mainline Protestantism in the 20th century. Forget that. But you see, it is not only, it's not first of all merely a doctrine of true Christian faith. It is first of all, and most importantly of all, a reality, an historic reality which confronts our lives. The virgin birth of Jesus was an event an occurrence in history, which was the pivotal 
event of world history. Yes, we might say, well, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, was the pivotal event. Yes, but it began here with his holy conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, how can we possibly even begin to express the enormity of what these words mean? Let's not let familiarity breed contempt here. What, what, what does, what, what, what? The incarnation, that is the enfleshment of God. The one who in the beginning said, let there be light. And there was light. It almost makes this preacher stammer and stutter to utter words about what? The birth of God? What could it possibly mean to say that the infinite, eternal, holy one became a lowly embryo in the womb of a woman? If we would just pause for just a moment, could we just pause for just a moment after saying the creed and reflect further on what we, we have just said. What, what did I just say? What, 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 what did I just say? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for our sake and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, enfleshed by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. What are the ramifications of that for you and for me personally? For the entire universe. You see, the virgin birth is a reality, and it makes a, a personal statement about the person, the man, Jesus Christ. The virgin birth is part and parcel of his real and true identity. His identity, just as the prophet Isaiah declared, and the apostle Matthew explained again, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God. God with us. In the middle of this mess we have made of our lives, in the middle of this all this suffering and grief and sadness of this world. And despite our own sinfulness and unworthiness, indeed, we should say, because of our sinfulness and our unworthiness, because of our sinfulness and our unworthiness, he has come into this world as one of us. Emmanuel. God with us. Would you please not 
let. The fun, festivity, frivolity, busyness, and hurriedness of the Christmas season distract you from and blind you to the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what his birth into this world really means for you. Would you? Would you? Would you promise not to let the fun, frivolity, festivity, busyness, and hurriedness blind you to the reality of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ born into this world for you? Now, we come to Isaiah chapter 7. I've, I've already noted that St. Matthew in his gospel quotes this prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, which we read as the foundational text this morning. But you, you might wonder, and it's okay if you did, and if you do, you might wonder, now, how does this text exactly, how does it really connect to the birth of Jesus? How is this text really a, 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 a prophecy of his birth? How does this work? Uh, this, is, this is a little bit of a difficult text. I want to acknowledge that to you. We're going to have to do a little bit of work here. I want you to get ready for that because this passage from Isaiah has a particular historical Context And in order for us to understand Isaiah 7 and how it connects to the virgin birth of Jesus, we've, we've got to do a little work on the historical context. So, okay, would you, would you tune in for that for just a minute? And here we go. But remember now, ultimately, this is about Jesus and we're going to get to Jesus. So just, everybody, here we go. Isaiah was a prophet of Yahweh to the southern kingdom of Judah, of which Jerusalem was the capital in the 8th century B.C. Now, that is to say, Isaiah's prophetic ministry dated from about 742 B.C. until about 700 B.C. And Isaiah was a prophet who had access to the king's of Judah. As the saying goes, Isaiah spoke truth to power. And this prophecy in Isaiah 7 was spoken to King Ahaz, king of Judah, who was, by the way, a very, very bad king. In about, about 735 BC. This was a time of political pressure, Upheaval, war and rumors of war. The great and dreaded military machine of the Assyrians, that would be modern day northeast Iraq, was on the move and bearing down upon the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah. They were big and they were bad. And the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, at this time in, in, in 
Old Testament history, you had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel entered into an alliance with the pagan nation, Syria, in order to oppose the threat of the Assyrians. And in their alliance, then the northern kingdom of Israel and the nation of Syria began to put pressure on the southern kingdom of Judah to force King Ahaz to join them in their opposition to Assyria. Well, this is part of the conversation we didn't read. Isaiah had gone to Ahaz and said, don't enter into that alliance. Put your trust in the Lord. He will deliver you from your enemies. Don't go into that military alliance with Israel and Syria. Trust in the Lord. So you see, the historical context of this Emmanuel prophecy is one of international tensions, the threat of war, the siege of Jerusalem, impending invasion of an insurmountable enemy, it was not good. It was not good at all. But it was in the context of this bad situation that the prophet Isaiah proclaimed good news. Isaiah counseled Ahaz not to enter into the alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. And even though bad king Ahaz didn't want to hear a word from the Lord, didn't want a sign from the Lord, assuring him of, of his deliverance, his protection from his enemies, Isaiah spoke it anyway. The Lord spoke it anyway. The Lord would give him a sign. And here it is. Behold, the virgin. Or in Hebrew, it could be rightly translated, young woman, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then to paraphrase, before this boy would be old enough to distinguish right and wrong, the two kingdoms of northern Israel and Syria would be defeated by Assyria, and then the kingdom of Judah itself would ultimately be delivered from the Assyrians. And the sign of this promise is that this virgin or young woman would bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the sign of this child was to give Ahaz the assurance that God was with the nation of Judah and would deliver them, all right? So in this, this Emmanuel prophecy, in its original historical context, the kingdom of Judah which was the kingdom of David, the capital of which was Jerusalem, in which the temple built by David's son Solomon stood, would be delivered from this crisis, saved from its enemies, if Ahaz would place his complete trust only in Yahweh. And it is in this context that the prophecy is given. The sign of this deliverance was that a virgin, that now the Hebrew word denotes a young woman of marriageable age. Unmarried, but marriageable. Would conceive and bear a son. And this is where 
This is where it, it gets a you know, it could get a little confusing. So just, here we go. Just, we're going to, we're, we're going down to the next level here, okay? But I got to do this. In order to deal with this passage, I got to do this, which means you got to, you got to stay with me. We don't know who that young woman was. And again, according to the Hebrew word, she, the unknown young woman in 735 BC, was not, um, she was a woman of marriageable age. And in the original historical context in 735 BC, this passage does not necessarily require that she was a virgin when she gave birth to the promised child. The Hebrew word, rightly translated, can be young woman, not yet married, but who would become married and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. We don't know who her son was. There's a lot of scholarly debate about that, but that's beside the point. And now you might really be confused, and that's okay. So let me explain. Let me explain. Sometimes this is how Old Testament prophecy works. Sometimes this is how Old Testament prophecy works. Sometimes an Old Testament prophecy has an immediate fulfillment in its original historical context, but then it also has its ultimate, its complete, its true fulfillment hundreds or even thousands of years later through Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Sometimes an Old Testament prophecy has its fulfillment in its immediate historical context, but then it also has its ultimate fulfillment hundreds of years later in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. But let me give you a, a couple of examples. You know that God spoke his word, God as it were, prophesied to Abraham that he would give him and his wife Sarah a son through whom God's covenant promise and blessing would be given to all the families of the earth. You familiar with that? And that promised son was Isaac, at least in the immediate historical context. But let me ask you, was Isaac really and truly and ultimately the son of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed? No. Who was that son of Abraham? That son of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Another example, the prophet Nathan prophesied to King David that one of his sons would build a house for the Lord, the temple, and that through David's son, his kingdom would be established forever. Well, Solomon was David's son who built the temple in Jerusalem. The royal line of David and the Davidic kingdom continued through Solomon, but was Solomon really and truly and ultimately the son of David who built the house of the Lord, the everlasting temple, the son of David through whom the kingdom of David would, was established forever? 
No. That son of David was and is Jesus Christ. So this is, it's the same principle at work here in this passage. It doesn't matter that we don't know who this young woman or her son was in the 8th century B.C. because the 8th century B.C. Emmanuel was, was given as a sign that Judah would be delivered from all their enemies. But he was not ultimately the sign of being delivered from our enemies. He was not really and ultimately the savior and deliverer of Judah from all its enemies. Okay? Because we know it's been revealed to us that the real and ultimate savior and deliverer from all our enemies is the one who was, in fact, conceived by a young woman who was, in fact, yes, a virgin. And this is precisely St. Matthew's point. This is the reason that he puts it this way in his gospel. Because when Matthew, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, quotes Isaiah 7, 14, he's translating it from the Hebrew into the Greek. And when he translates that word from the Hebrew into the Greek, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, he uses a Greek word which very specifically, very clearly means literally virgin. He makes it clear. This is what Matthew is telling us. This son, conceived by a real virgin, is the real deal. He's the true and ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. He's the one for whom we have been waiting since the days of Isaiah. He is our true savior and deliverer from all our enemies. If only we will place our faith and trust in him alone. That's Matthew's point. The real Emmanuel has arrived, born of the virgin. And this theme is picked up elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, when the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, is filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks of Jesus as the one who would save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. But being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. And so you, you see that that passage is telling us that deliverance from all our enemies really the deliverance from all our enemies through our Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, really enables us to serve God in holiness and righteousness, which means it is through him that we receive the forgiveness of all our sins. And so Matthew and Luke are telling us, and I think with reference to Isaiah 7, that our true deliverance our true salvation from all our enemies is not ultimately a matter of being delivered from military foes in this world, but ultimately from the spiritual foes of Satan, sin, and death. And so Jesus is the one 
for whom the first century believers had been waiting since the time of Isaiah. But it goes back much further than that. The virgin birth, really the prophecy of the virgin birth goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God himself spoke the prophecy, when he cursed the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It's very interesting. There in the Garden of Eden, when Adam had failed, Adam is the one who sinned against God. Adam is the one who brought the fall into the world and the redemption would come through the means of the woman. And this conflict between Satan and the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the seed of the woman, that is to say, the man born of woman without the involvement of a man, the man born of woman, but not procreated by a man. He would be the savior deliverer. A virgin born man who would suffer a mortal wound inflicted by the serpent, but who in suffering that wound would crush the head of the serpent and destroy him forever, thus saving and delivering his people from all their enemies, Satan, sin, and death itself. You see, this man, born of woman, without the involvement of a man, not procreated by man, this man is ultimately the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, in the mystery of the incarnation, the divine nature of the eternal Son of God, the divine second person of the Holy Trinity, was united with the essence of Mary's true human nature. Shielded and protected from the fallen sinful nature, the divine nature was united to the essence of true human nature. And so, the divine nature was united with sinless human nature in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God became man without ceasing to be God. God became man in every respect like us, but without sin. And the question is, why? 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 What? Why is this... Necessary? Why does this matter to you and me? The very next line of the Nicene Creed tells us, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Why did the Word become flesh? 
Why did the Son of God come into the world as the Son of Mary? Why did God send forth his Son, born of woman, but not procreated by man? For this reason and this reason only, to live a perfectly righteous, obedient, sinless life before the Father on our behalf as a man, the second Adam, the true Adam, the last Adam, as our human representative before the Father. And then as the righteous man to offer himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice for us to pay the sinner's price, to cover the sinner's debt to divine justice, to remove the curse of sin and death from all creation and to destroy forever the enemies of our souls, Satan, sin, and death itself. And now we come to it, you see. The the virgin birth is something that is very personal for you and me. It, It is not an abstract doctrine. It has to do with your personal relationship to your almighty and holy creator. Because you see, the virgin birth of Jesus points not only to his divine nature, maybe we think about it mostly in those terms, but in fact, even more so, more emphatically, the virgin birth points to Jesus' human nature. You see, it was necessary for for him to be born of woman. It was necessary for the Son of God to become Son of Mary in order to be a human, in order to be your representative and your mediator before God the Father Almighty. Only in his human nature could he die a human death to pay the price of human sin, your sins and mine. The divine Son of God in his sinless humanity is your only hope of redemption, your only personal connection to your holy creator. And that has come to us by his being conceived in the womb of the virgin who, as the scripture says, all generations call blessed because she is the one through whom God came into the world by giving birth to the Son of God. And so you see, the reality of the virgin birth reveals to us who Jesus Christ is. Emmanuel, God, God with us, and therefore confronts us with the necessity of a personal response to Jesus Christ. A personal response to Jesus Christ, who for our sake and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, enfleshed by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You know, you just, you just can't jolly your way through Christmas 
as though this doesn't really matter because if this doesn't matter, nothing matters. So what must our response be? Our response must be the response of humble faith. Humble, receptive faith. Humble, receptive, personal faith. Which is the response which Mary herself gave to the angel Gabriel's announcement. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to the word of God that through true and personal faith in Jesus Christ, I am finally and fully delivered from all my enemies. Satan, sin, and death itself. Let it be to me according to the word of God, the good news that the Son of God became the son of Mary so that I would have one like me yet without sin as my mediator, my great high priest, my advocate, and my reconciliation with the Father. Let it be to me according to the word of God that the son of God became the son of Mary my Emmanuel, God with us through all of life and into eternity forever. Let it be to me according to the good news of Jesus Christ. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, and we thank you for your great love and rich mercy in which you have sent him to be our Savior and mediator and the shepherd of your people. Grant us this grace to believe more deeply and our hearts may be filled with wonder and praise and joy and peace, not only in this season, but in all the seasons of our lives. To the glory and honor of your name into eternity, Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. During this season, we say the Nicene Creed because of its emphasis and clarity about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his divine nature united with his sinless human nature. And therefore, Christian, I ask you, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very.